Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, as usual, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. So another news story episode, for the most part. And I think like last time, I'll probably break the show up into segments and upload them onto YouTube. I managed to upload two of the three segments from the last episode, the Adrenochrome and Jason Aldean controversy segments, but I didn't get around to making a video version of the Marilyn Manson story, kind of ran out of time, and also found myself wondering whether the segment was good enough to merit a YouTube version. But anyway, two out of three ain't bad, as they say, and I got the feeling people liked having the stories uploaded individually, so that might be the plan going forward. Long format news story episodes that are then broken up into clips. The exceptions might be, of course, those little documentary episodes I like to do from time to time, and little mini one-off news story episodes. But speaking of content, let's get on with the show. How's that for a segue? So first up, I heard this story on the local news a few days ago. Apparently a funeral home in El Salvador is offering Barbie-themed coffins. And given the popularity of the recent film and how people here in the States are usually quick to try to monopolize monetarily on just about anything and everything under the sun, I'm kind of surprised it's a Salvadoran and not an American funeral home doing this. And also maybe because um, I understandably tend to think of Barbie as being a product of American culture. She was invented by an American businesswoman after all. But in fairness, Barbie's so popular and she's been around so long that I imagine she's probably loved by kids all over the world. And despite how weird and morbid the story might seem, I actually have no problem with this. Uh, if people want to make themed coffins and people are willing to pay for them, why not? And I imagine the thought of being buried in a coffin, this is really getting morbid quickly, being buried in a coffin that celebrates a cultural phenomenon they love might be comforting to some people. The only objection I could possibly think of is maybe you could try to argue it's unseemly to try to capitalize off of someone's death by selling them or their loved ones themed coffins, but hey, we already live in a society where people are forced to pay out the nose for coffins and funeral expenses. Or sorry your husband died. Will that be Visa or MasterCard? Financing is available. But, um, but you know, even though I know people who build coffins and run funeral homes have to eat and pay bills too, I've always found it a little kind of cold or off-putting that we do live in a society where, you know, you lose someone and you have to worry about having enough money to bury them with dignity. But, you know, since we have to buy coffins anyway, why not themed ones that bring some joy or excitement or comfort to the decedent-to-be? I remember Kiss, especially Gene Simmons, used to peddle all kinds of Kiss-themed merchandise, including coffins. Maybe they still do, I don't know. And it's funny, when I heard the story at work, I was picturing a pink coffin that looked like the box a Barbie figure would come in, but based on the photos in the article I'm going to read from in a bit, it looks like a typical coffin but colored pink, and it looks like there's photos of Barbie, including a big image of her face on the inside, you know, of the lid, which is kind of creepy. <laughs> but if you love Barbie enough to buy a Barbie coffin, I imagine that, uh, 
you're probably all right with that. And also when I first heard the story, because I have a dark neurotic mind, uh, I couldn't help but imagine the contrast of this bright pink Barbie coffin with the rotting nightmare of a decomposing body inside. Zombie Barbie. Have they done that one yet? I remember when I was a little kid, there were these die-cast metal Japanese robot toys I loved called Shogun Warriors. Uh, can I be buried in a Shogun Warrior-themed coffin, complete with a cutout window, dress me up like a robot, and put me inside so you can see my corpse on display like an action figure? This might be the darkest episode yet. And so here's a bit from that article I mentioned, and it's from Yahoo News. A funeral home in El Salvador is selling hot pink Barbie-themed coffins because the owner wants to, in quotes, jump on the movie's success. And there's some bullet points. The owner told the AP Associated Press, the coffins have been a major success since Barbie came out in July. So far, he sold 10 Barbie-themed coffins and has no plans to stop since, in quotes, people are asking for it. A funeral... And then, uh, yeah, it's a bit redundant. I'll jump down. Since the release of the hotly anticipated Greta Gerwig-directed film starring Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, Alpha and Omega Funeral Home... Wow, that's a heavy name, man. Alpha and Omega Funeral Home in... Ahua Chapan, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that, has been providing clientele with the option of burying their loved ones in hot pink metal coffins, complete with white linings, gold embellishments, and of course, posters of the doll herself, according to the Associated Press. Imagine a picture of a doll staring at you for eternity. Uh, and I tried to look up the proper pronunciation of that place name and found about three different pronunciations. So my apologies uh, to the good people who inhabit that place. But the article continues on Friday. Owner Isaac Viegas, I think it is, told the Associated Press his funeral home had offered pink coffins before Barbie came out. But once he saw how popular the film was becoming across Latin America, he decided to go all out with themed decorations. And it's not just Latin America where Barbie fever is truly taking off. Earlier this week, Business Insider reported Barbie is on track to top $1 billion in global box office sales. And just for context, this story is dated August 5th, so a few days ago. I don't know where the numbers are now regarding the box office. I don't know if much has changed over the past uh, three days or how often they calculate it. But I just thought that was, I was going to say a fun story, but we're talking about uh, funeral homes and coffins so much that maybe it's as, as morbid as it is fun. Hopefully it wasn't too morbid. Uh, anyway, uh, let's move on to the next story. So originally I was going to cover a story about a scientific discovery that might help shed light on the phenomenon of uh, so-called out-of-body experiences. But then at the last minute I discovered a rationality rules video in which he responds to a clip of right-wing Christian commentator Michael Knowles criticizing the late, great Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if I've ever mentioned Michael Knowles on the show before. I try not to speak ill of people, but uh, he's one of those people that just really rubs me the wrong way. To be honest, I can't stand the guy. I find him to be smarmy and disingenuous. 
Um, but the name of the original video that Rationality Rules responded to is entitled Michael Knowles Debunks Christopher Hitchens Viral Moments. And as an admirer of Christopher Hitchens, it got under my skin, which is probably the effect uh, Michael Knowles was going for, and I found it just pathetic. Knowles is basically pretending to be smarter than he is by trying to debate a dead man who, while alive, would have intellectually trounced him. But I'm sure Knowles' audience in their conservative Christian echo chamber will still nevertheless think that he just absolutely mopped the floor with Hitchens, sadly. The original video is around 16 or 18 minutes long, so I just isolated a few short clips that I'll respond to. You know, I was an atheist for 10 years, and one of the reasons that I was an atheist is the very unfortunate timing that I was a 13-year-old boy when Christopher Hitchens got really, really popular for being an atheist. Rationality Rules, a.k.a. Stephen Woodford, made an excellent point. At the time Hitchens' book, God Is Not Great, was released, in 2007, I believe, Knowles, who is now 33, would have been around 16 at the youngest, or 17, not 13. Did Knowles make a mistake, or did he intentionally misstate his age, because saying he was 13 makes him sound more like a sympathetic or impressionable young boy who was preyed on by the mean old atheist. I don't know, but I definitely wouldn't put it past him. But let's continue. And I remember at the time, there were all those new atheists, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. And those first three were not all that interesting, at least not to a 13-year-old boy. But, but Chris Hitchens really was, he was so clever, he seemed so witty, he was so drunken and sweaty and British. He just seemed really, really great at the time. And I can't even imagine how many poor souls he has led away from God and to eternal perdition. Really sad. I couldn't help but notice that he calls him Chris Hitchens. I'm not sure if he did that on purpose or not, but once again, wouldn't put it past him. Hitchens disliked being called Chris, and when people referred to him as such, he would ask or instruct them to call him Christopher, not Chris. Uh, and then he talks about the poor souls Christopher Hitchens led to eternal perdition. Which is problematic on a couple of levels. He's blaming someone else for leading people into everlasting hell by, what, daring them to question man-made religions and think for themselves? Um, you know, think of what kind of picture that paints of God, a cosmic tyrant that condemns people to eternal punishment for daring to question his existence. And it's interesting because one of Knowles' criticisms of Hitchens is that he paints God as a celestial dictator, and yet he's kind of affirming that caricature by suggesting that the price for not believing is being condemned to suffer in hell for all eternity. Now I find I go back and I read a Hitchens essay or I look at a Hitchens video and it just doesn't hit the same. And so Hitchens still has some funny bits, he has bits about how women aren't funny, and he's got some great bits on scotch and tea and things like that. But his stuff on God, in retrospect, seems like weak sauce. So the producers have picked the creme de la creme of Christopher Hitchens' atheist videos. I have not seen these videos, or at the very least, I haven't seen them in probably 
20 years. I was almost gonna give him shit, pardon my language, for saying it was 20 years ago, but God Is Not Great came out in 2007 once again, so about 17 years ago. Close enough, I guess, although Hitchens um, did a lot of debates and gave a lot of talks in between the release of God Is Not Great and the time of his death. I believe he passed in 2011. Uh, once again, can't believe how time flies. And we're gonna take a look back, decades after this man helped lead me down the dark road. Take it away. If you meet someone in the street who you yesterday saw executed, you can say either that an extraordinary miracle has occurred or that you are under a very grave misapprehension. And David Hume's logic on this, I think, is quite irrefutable. He says, what is more likely, that the laws of nature have been suspended in your favor and in a way that you approve, or that you've made a mistake? Especially if you didn't see it yourself and you're hearing it from someone who says that they did. After all, Lazarus was raised, never said a word about it. The daughter of Jairus was raised, didn't say a thing about what she'd been through. And the Gospels tell us that at the time of the crucifixion, all the graves in Jerusalem opened and their occupants wandered around the streets to greet. So it seems the resurrection was a, a, something of a banality at the time. Not all, <laughs> not all of those people clearly were divinely uh, conceived. I'll give you all the miracles and you'll still be left exactly where you are now, holding an empty sack. Christopher Hitchens is saying, well, what's more likely? That you, the individual, were deceived or that the laws of nature were suspended? But when we're talking about the resurrection, we're not talking about you individually being deceived. We're talking about 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection being deceived. We're talking about all of the apostles being deceived. The earliest gospels were written within three or four decades of the resurrection. That would be like me right now writing about Tupac Shakur. And I say, actually, Tupac rose from the dead. Well, if I said that, and if that story was spreading around, people would contradict me if it didn't really happen. You see the New Testament accounts. It's referring to people who would have still been alive and whose relatives would have still been alive at the time those gospel accounts were circulating. And then you have four accounts, all of which basically agree with one another. And where they would seem to disagree on certain details, they do so in the way that newspapers disagree about news events. In fact, the, the fact that they seem to disagree about certain details or, or seem to approach events from different vantage points actually would be a mark in their favor. Because if they were all exactly, completely in lockstep on vantage point and, and every single line, you would say, oh, this was just contrived. The fact that this was all circulated, the fact that we see this in non-Christian sources, the fact that this event changed the entire world and has withstood debunking for 2,000 years, and the best that Christopher Hitchens can offer is some stupid line from David Hume, Weak sauce. What's the next? And so rationality rules responded to the 500 comment. In 1 Corinthians, I believe, it states that Jesus appeared to 500 quote-unquote brothers and sisters. Um, Hitchens was making the point via David Hume that if you hear some fantastic supernatural claim, you should ask yourself what's more likely, that the laws of nature were actually suspended or that the claim is a, a fiction or delusion. Something to that effect. A very excellent point, in my opinion, and that's my approach to claims of the supernatural. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and all that. And it's interesting, not that long ago, I was actually reading an article about the supposed 500 witnesses mentioned in 1 Corinthians on Bart Ehrman's blog. It's Ehrman, right? I've admired the guy for years. I'm still not sure how to pronounce his last name. But if you're not familiar, Bart Ehrman or Ehrman is a, uh, a well-known biblical or New Testament scholar. 
He started out as a devout Christian, but the more he studied the Bible, he kind of drifted towards agnosticism. But yeah, there's an article about the 500. And so he says, I get this question every now and then, maybe five or six times just this year. These days, among other things, I point out something I hadn't thought about in most of my years of my existence, that there was almost certainly no Christian group, meaning a group of people who believed Jesus was raised from the dead, of that size in Paul's day anywhere in the world. I discussed the numbers of Christians at different time periods in antiquity in my book, The Triumph of Christianity. So on that level alone, it seems highly implausible. And he mentions Paul because, of course, uh, and this comes as a surprise to some people when they first hear it, the oldest writings in the New Testament aren't the Gospels, they're uh, Paul's letters, and it's thought that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And if I jump down, and this is a fairly lengthy article, you can find it yourself on uh, Bart Ehrman's blog, ehrmanblog.org, and so... He also states, because he goes into where he thinks Paul might have heard this story, which sources, um, lists that may have been compiled, and he says, This is not simply a historically driven list. It is one driven by a literary-slash-apologetic motive. And down at the very end, he says, so where did Paul get his information from? Maybe Peter, maybe James, maybe other Christians, maybe a combination of them all. I doubt if he quote-unquote made up the idea of 500 brothers. I think it's 500 brothers and sisters. Maybe it depends on which translation you're reading. But he says, once again, I doubt if he made up the idea of 500 brothers at one time out of whole cloth. My sense is that rumors of these sorts of things circulate all the time, as with the appearances of the Blessed Virgin Mary in modern times, as she is attested as appearing to a thousand people at once in some times and places. Do I think this is evidence that she really did appear to these people? No, not really. Same with Paul. There were stories about such appearances, and he believed them. Yeah, so like he says, you know, both in modern times and in antiquity, you have stories or rumors that circulate and probably become embellished and exaggerated with time. And it's funny, he, Knowles, refers to Hitchens' arguments as weak sauce, and yet he makes what I found to be an especially weak argument himself. Uh, that this stuff, you know, stories about the resurrection or whatever it was, uh, that if they were untrue, and I think he used himself making up a story about Tupac Shakur, or Shakur, rising from the dead, and how people would have rejected it. So he's saying, once again, that if these claims about Christianity weren't true. People at the time would have rejected them. And what makes you think they didn't? You don't think there were people who rejected the claims of early Christianity? And at some point, I don't think it's in any of the clips I harvested, but he mentions outside sources that mention Jesus, such as Flavius Josephus. And Josephus, or Josephus's most famous reference to Jesus, is a passage in his Antiquities, often referred to as the Testimonium Flavianum, which kind of lays it on thick, referring to Jesus as a wise man and the Messiah, etc. 
But I think many scholars, if not the consensus of scholars, believe it's a later interpolation, meaning someone else went in down the road and altered or added to the text. It's thought that the passage probably did refer to Jesus, but a later scribe altered or added to it to be, you know, to make it kind of more flattering or pro-Christian. And Josephus was writing in the 90s AD or CE, so decades after the death of Jesus. And as I often say, you know, I'm agnostic on the historicity of Jesus. I have no problem believing there was a historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth or Yeshua, but I'm also open to the idea that he may have been some kind of mythical composite figure. So the idea that historians would refer to Jesus, who may have very well been a historical figure, doesn't really impress me that much. It doesn't prove that he rose from the dead or walked on water or appeared to 500 people after his death. Then Noel spews an apologist talking point that always makes me roll my eyes, that you'd expect to find contradictions or little discrepancies in the Gospels if they were real eyewitness accounts. It actually adds to their veracity, you know. It just strikes me as somewhat disingenuous or intellectually dishonest. Uh, like, they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. If there were no discrepancies, they'd say, oh, see, inspired by God, it must be true. The stories all match. And in a way, there seem to be two different camps among Bible scholars. There's those, and they usually tend to be believing Christians or Christian apologists, who believe that the gospel writers were trying to convey actual events as if they were eyewitness journalistic accounts. And then there's those who say they're meant to be taken symbolically or figuratively to some extent. You know, stories meant to convey a higher truth, the gospel, the good news. For example, there's a biblical scholar I really like named Dominic Crossan, and I believe he's actually a former priest. A long time ago, I watched this Frontline documentary special called From Jesus to Christ, the First Christians. I've actually watched it many times. I believe you can find it on YouTube if it's still up. I think it's a three or four part series. And in it, he, Crossan, says, paraphrasing, either the gospel writers meant for them to be taken literally, and we're so smart we know to take them figuratively, or they meant for them, the gospels or their writings, to be taken figuratively, and we're so stupid we insist on taking them literally, and he says he thinks it's the latter. It also reminds me of a book a friend gave me a long time ago as a Christmas gift. I was in my early 20s, and I had a friend who was actually a devout Catholic, and we actually used to spar over religion. And uh, one Christmas, because the circle of friends I had, we, every Christmas we'd exchange gifts until it became too expensive, and we just stopped one year. He gave me a copy of Bishop Shelby Spong's book, Liberating the Gospels, I believe, uh, I think he's deceased now, but I believe uh, Bishop Shelby Spong was an Episcopalian. But the book is all about how, in his opinion, the Gospels are chock full of Jewish or Hebrew symbolism, and many of the stories in the New Testament are actually meant to mirror Old Testament stories, which is very true, like the... Um, 
the story of the flight of the Holy Family into Egypt in order to escape Herod and the slaughter of the innocents. And that supposedly mirrors the story in the Old Testament of the infant Moses needing to be hidden in the basket in the reeds, that famous story, in order to escape the Pharaoh's decree to kill uh, the young Jewish males. And so Shelby Spong's take was that the Gospels were basically chock full of Jewish symbolism and weren't meant to be taken as literal eyewitness accounts. And who knows, you know, once again, if there was a historical Jesus, which I have no problem believing, it could be a mix. Bits of biography mixed with allegories and symbolism. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that's very well the case. But anyway, let's move on to the next clip. Follows from that. And then he says, Christianity is not a pacifist religion. No, it's not a pacifist religion. That's true. But it's not a, a, not a call to violence. And he says it's a, a supernatural dictatorship. And this gets back to something he said in the previous video, too. He says, can you imagine that how insane it would be that the laws of nature could be suspended in, in the course of miracles? You say, well, the natural has to be based on a foundation of the supernatural. This, this is necessary. The fact that we can speak, the fact that we're communicating ideas at all, which I can't touch, I can't smell them, I can't see them, but nevertheless they exist. The fact that mathematics exists, the fact that loves and dreams and hopes and desires and any in intelligible thing at all exists shows you that there is a metaphysical layer to reality, and it's more, more fundamental than the physical layer. Really shallow stuff. Fit, fit for a 13-year-old. Next one. And so there he is calling Hitchin shallow and comparing him to a 13-year-old. But he seems to very confidently or matter-of-factly state that Christianity is not a pacifist or pacifistic religion, which, and I may be somewhat in disagreement with Hitchens here, uh, but seems very odd or telling to me. And I mean telling of Knowles, not Hitchens. And for context, because I'm not sure if I ended up editing it out, but Hitchens himself was trying to make the point that Christianity isn't necessarily a pacifistic religion. And he brings up the passage where Jesus talks about how he has come not to bring peace, but a sword. And yeah, there is that passage and other people have tried to make similar arguments. But to me, even as a kid, I think, who was, you know, Christian at the time, I was raised Catholic, I've always taken that passage figuratively, interpreting it personally as meaning that Jesus was saying that he or his message um, would be received as controversial or upset or divide people, not that he was literally calling for people to pick up swords and be violent. There are some people like Reza Aslan in his book Zealot, and I think people have accused him of basically just recycling someone else's idea, but he tries to suggest that Jesus may have been advocating for military rebellion and that he was some kind of zealot or freedom fighter who wanted to see uh, the Romans physically overthrown. And I don't know if it's him, but I've even heard people try to interpret uh, the passage about turning the other cheek, which has come to kind of represent the pacifistic spirit of Christianity, but reinterpreting it as um, that it may not have been a message of pacifism and being meek and tolerant, but it may have meant turning your cheek. If someone hits you in the cheek, 
to turn your other cheek as if in an act of defiance. Uh, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I think it was probably Christianity's pacifistic ethos or approach that allowed it to survive. If the early Christians had tried to physically rebel against the Roman Empire, they would have been utterly crushed. In fact, I believe it's thought that the gospel writers went out of their way not to antagonize the Romans, render unto Caesar and all that. Even Pilate is painted uh, in somewhat of a sympathetic light, when I believe it's thought the historical uh, Pontius Pilate was a rather brutal or ruthless governor. And before anyone jumps on me, I know there's also a more traditional interpretation of render unto Caesar. You know, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. And of course, in the context of the Synoptic Gospels or New Testament, it's referring to paying your taxes. And I think traditionally the message is something along the lines that you can be faithful to your religion while also meeting the requirements of the, the governmental system in which you, in which you live. And, uh, but at the same time, I'm sure it doesn't hurt that it's sending a message to the Romans. You don't have to worry about us rocking the boat. No trouble from us. We'll pay our taxes, you know. And also on the subject of Christianity and whether or not it was a pacifistic religion. Yeah, I mean, when once you get into the Middle Ages and Christianity is long established as the dominant religion and the Catholic Church is this immense power, uh, yeah, you get plenty of violence and atrocities done in its name, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Christianity itself is inherently violent, and suddenly I'm defending Christianity. And uh, I think some of the violence done in the name of Christianity can be traced back to the Old Testament, thou shall not suffer a witch to live, etc. Uh, but you get my point, it's early development. It was this upstart religious movement that made its way into the Greco-Roman world and was blossoming in the shadow of an empire. It stood no chance of physically defeating. And I think, once again, pacifism was probably necessary for its survival. You could argue that it was ideologically rebellious or subversive, which I think it definitely was in a sense. Religion was a big part of Roman life, and Christians were, as strange as it might sound, were ironically reviled as atheists by the Romans because they didn't acknowledge the Greco-Roman gods. But the feeling I get is that Knowles just likes the idea of Christianity not being a pacifistic religion because then it would be more in keeping with his warped personal ideology or his kind of, you know, more extreme right-wing ideology. Then he goes on to talk about, once again, as if it's fact, that there's a supernatural or metaphysical substrate or layer to everything. Uh, look at the fact that we can speak and share ideas. You can speak and share ideas because you've got a meat brain and vocal cords that slap together. But uh, my own snark aside, yeah, we still have a long way to go in understanding consciousness. And could there be a higher power or some metaphysical or supernatural force at work out there? You know, it's possible, who the hell knows? Uh, if we knew for certain, we wouldn't be flapping our gums arguing about it, you know? That's my take anyway. I consider myself 
an agnostic atheist. Uh, you guys are probably sick of hearing me say that. Don't claim to know, but got some serious doubts. And even if there is some higher power out there, that still wouldn't necessarily mean that Christianity's true. What I'm talking about are specific religious injunctions to do evil, to mutilate the genitalia of children, for example. So to take the pastor, Douglas Wilson, um, who uh, Dr. Craig was just mentioning, with whom I crossed swords several times this year, recently in Dallas. I happened to be mentioning to him about the commandment to exterminate the Amalekites in one of our debates, and he said that commandment is still valid. If there were any Amalekites, it would be his job to make sure that they were all put to the sword. And, there, or, and some, of, some of the virgins left over for slavery, purposes better imagined perhaps than, than described. I think this is a very serious problem. I'm not taking refuge in the commonplace that uh, sometimes people, religious people behave badly that would discredit religion. That, that would be a very soft option. I'm saying there are specific biblical scriptural injunctions to do evil. When we talk about human action, we're talking about political action, the decision to create a bomb, the, the decision to drop that bomb, the decision to talk to somebody about dropping the bomb. That, that would be a political action that involves society. But at a higher level, what that involves is applied morality. So before you make that decision, you have to know something about applied morality. How do we come to those decisions, and what does our morality say about those decisions? Above applied morality, you have morality broadly, more abstract morality. Above that, you have anthropology. What is man? What is the nature of man such that we can even make these kinds of moral decisions and come to these moral conclusions and engage in these political actions? above anthropology of epistemology. How can we know anything at all? Know anything about human beings, but know anything about anything? How do we know? And then beyond epistemology, you have the question of theology. What is there to know? What is reality? What is? Christopher Hitchens stops at like the first circle, as do all of these people. Well, that's just science. Okay, well, what's behind the science? What, what are the premises that go into that? They don't want to acknowledge that. They say, no, religion is all bad. Religion is a habit of virtue that renders to God what he deserves. That's it. People have different views on religion, some more correct, some less correct. But to have this childish uh, atheism coming from Christopher Hitchens who throws his hands up and says, la, 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 religion bad, religion. Well, everybody engages in some kind of religion. Right? They just, some people just are not conscious of what they're doing, unfortunately, like Hitchens, who speaks very well, but who doesn't, who doesn't have very deep things to say. Did you notice how they added the uh, dramatic sounding music behind him so the pablum he was spewing would seem like it had more gravitas than it actually did? And for context, that clip of Hitchens was taken from a talk or a debate, and there was someone in the audience who accused science of being an ideology or suggested that science was an ideology, which is ridiculous. Saying science is an ideology is like saying auto repair is an ideology. Uh, granted, individual scientists can be blinded or guided by ideology or bias, or a certain ideological bias can creep its way into a certain field of science. But science itself isn't an ideology. It's ideally about systematic study, observation, experimentation, gathering data, etc. And ironically, Knowles accuses Hitchens of speaking, but not really saying anything very deep. And yet that's pretty much what Knowles just did. He basically describes a sandwich, uh, you know, made of layers of different disciplines or fields of philosophical study, epistemology, theology, etc. 
but otherwise doesn't really say anything substantive. Uh, it's probably safe to say that Hitchens had a better understanding of those concepts than Knowles does. I think Knowles' problem with Hitchens, and this is a criticism others have leveled at Hitchens, that despite his intelligence and eloquence, he has or had kind of a cartoonish or superficial approach or understanding of religion. My take is that it was the contrary, that Hitchens had a very deep understanding and familiarity with religion and philosophical concepts. He was an extremely erudite and extremely well-read individual. I think he just liked to cut to the chase and call bullshit on bullshit. He wasn't interested in going out of his way to be charitable to religion or going into all the figurative ways you can interpret it so certain verses don't seem as bad. His approach was, bottom line, if it isn't true, it isn't true, and if it's causing harm, it deserves to be unapologetically called out. He was intimately familiar with theological and philosophical concepts. It's just that he was a self-proclaimed anti-theist, and he had a very no-quarter, gloves-off approach to religion. But I've had just about enough of Michael Knowles. On to the last story. So I was watching an Onion Nuggets video, and you might be saying, rightfully, what the hell is Onion Nuggets? And, uh, and it's a channel that belongs to um, the Deep Fat Fried podcast, which is the podcast that TJ Kirk, along with his brother Scotty and best friend Paul host. I believe they were having trouble with monetization, which is why they started another channel and they throw clips up on there. But they were reacting to a clip of some Christian TikToker, I think, trying to do a gotcha. So here's the clip. In full disclosure, this is just the part with the uh, TikToker, not their response to her. If you're an atheist, why do you not believe in God? And if you don't believe in God because you say the book is written by man, why do you believe in evolution? Because that was also made up by a, a guy. I think. So addressing the first part, why don't I believe in a God? That's something I'm always happy to talk about, but maybe I should address the second part first. She asks, if you don't believe in the Bible because it was written by a man, why do you believe in evolution when it was also just made up by some guy or however she phrased or worded it? So if I have a book of mythology in one hand, or maybe another religious text other than the Bible, like the Bhagavad Gita, and a physical science or biology textbook in the other, you're telling me the two are equivalent, that you don't get why they're different? And in fairness, Origin of Species isn't a science textbook. It's a scientific treatise, a well-researched scientific treatise. But hopefully you get the analogy I was trying to draw. But anyway, you know, people shouldn't believe in evolution because Darwin was some infallible secular prophet, as I think, you know, they think we view him. You should believe in evolution because of the scientific evidence. Darwin proposed the idea, laid it out in The Origin of Species, and I think there were kind of predecessors. There were people, you can go as far back as the Middle Ages, if not earlier, and there were people who kind of touched on what would become uh, the theory of evolution. I believe at the same time Darwin was working on his ideas, there was someone else doing similar research. Uh, I think it was Alfred Wallace, if I'm not mistaken. 
But yeah, Darwin proposed the idea, and then it was validated by things like the fossil record observation of morphological similarities between different life forms or species, and now in the modern era by genetic science. And Christian apologists will often try to argue that you can't observe evolution, and usually that's true because it takes so long. But evolutionary changes over generations have been observed in laboratory settings and animals with very short lifespans or life cycles, such as flies. But saying or suggesting that a scientific treatise is the same as a religious text, it's like, wow. And she says it with such casual self-assuredness. Ignorance truly is bliss, I suppose. But why don't I believe in God? This is something I've gone over on the show many times. I even have an episode entitled, I believe, Why I Don't Believe in God, uh, which I think I originally released a few years ago, maybe longer the way time flies. There's a, uh, a YouTube version as well. And my reasons are probably still generally the same as those I expressed in that episode. And again, I technically consider myself an agnostic atheist, as many atheists do, so I don't claim to know there isn't a god or an afterlife. I just have my reasons for strongly doubting those things. One reason is just the seemingly man-made nature of religion. If you study religion, it becomes painfully clear that you're dealing with man-made belief systems. Uh, you have different religions making contradictory truth claims, religious texts that contradict themselves. In the Bible, for instance, you have things like doublets in the Old Testament, two or more different versions of the same story with differing details. In the New Testament, you have discrepancies between the gospel accounts, etc. And you can also see religions growing out of other traditions, evolving and changing when exposed to other cultures. Say with ancient Judaism, it was obviously influenced by or grew out of Mesopotamian polytheism or Near Eastern polytheism. Uh, it was influenced by Zoroastrianism, by Greek philosophy. And you can see how those influences like Zoroastrianism or Greek thought, Greek philosophy, kind of changed and shaped Jewish concepts or notions uh, about things like an afterlife or the existence or nature of the soul, etc. Another reason is the problem of evil or suffering, the horror of the food chain, eon after eon of animals rending and devouring each other for sustenance. And in fairness, just because suffering exists and horrors of nature exist, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's not a god. You could still argue for an impersonal god or a non-interventionist god. But the natural brutality of this world does make me doubt the existence of a just or benevolent personal creator God. And Christians would probably tend to blame it on original sin, it's our fault, which I've always found to be a rather monstrous idea. Two people ate the wrong kind of fruit, so now all of humanity down through the ages must suffer, grow old, and die uh, for that one transgression, that ancient transgression they had nothing to do with other than also being human. Uh, and what about all the suffering that existed long before man existed? Once again, millions of years of creatures ripping each other apart, 99% of the species that have ever existed dying off. 
And I was worried that the Barbie coffin segment was too morbid. Anyway, another one of the main reasons I doubt a god or at least an afterlife is that it appears to me, and I'm not a neuroscientist or a scientist of any kind, but it seems to me based on my layman's knowledge on the subject and just using my reasoning, that consciousness is most likely an emergent property of the brain. There seems to be a strong connection or correlation between the physical brain and consciousness or the mind, the self, personality, you get my point, and you damage one part of the brain and you can affect anything from facial recognition to impulse control, memory, etc. And say with... Um, if someone develops a degenerative brain disease like Alzheimer's, it's not just the brain that deteriorates, but the personality or self along with it. So it would seem to me, sadly, that when the brain, when the physical brain goes, we, our self, probably goes as well. Uh, I don't want to believe that. I'd rather believe that our consciousness does survive death, and hopefully I'm wrong. But I just do my best to be honest with myself and others. And I tend to lean towards the scientific materialist view on this one because it seems to me that's what's more likely. Maybe you could argue, as some do, that the brain doesn't produce consciousness, but it's like a receiver or transmitter or it modulates consciousness. Uh, I try to stay open-minded to such ideas, but even when espoused by scientists or philosophers, uh, they still strike me as a kind of wishful thinking in a sense. And it was actually just yesterday, I was watching an interview with Rupert Sheldrake, where he was talking about how he thinks that when we die, our consciousness might continue on in a kind of dreamlike state. Uh, that would be nice, but is it true? I think even he would admit it's just a hypothesis at best at the moment. Also, he's considered uh, something of a maverick or outlier in the academic world. Uh, still very in a very intelligent guy with some very interesting ideas. I hope he's, uh, I hope he's right, you know. Um, unless it was like just all really bizarre, nightmarish dreams, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that would be horrible. But maybe still better than death, non-existence. I don't know. I have some pretty bad dreams, but if it was like a really cool lucid dream where you were in a realistic world and could do whatever you want, um, that'd be interesting. I'm not holding my breath that there's anything afterwards, but I guess we'll all find out someday if there's some Technicolor Valhalla out there, <laughs> but um, let's see. Uh, yeah, and I think the last reason is the lack of evidence for the supernatural, miracles, faith healings, apparitions, demonic possessions, etc. It seems like when you dig deep, you know, into any claim of the supernatural, it always ends up being explainable by naturalistic means. And I know it's just anecdotal, but I've personally never experienced any supernatural phenomena, never seen a ghost, witnessed a miracle. Um, the world seems firmly bound by or grounded in the laws of nature. Um, the closest I've ever come to a paranormal experience is probably when a friend and I were in our late teens and witnessed an unidentified flying object one night. And I mean just that, an unidentified flying object. My guess is there was some mundane explanation. It was probably just some kind of 
aircraft of earthly origins that we were unfamiliar with and were having trouble identifying. Uh, I don't think there were little green men or anything. I do believe in believe that there is probably alien life somewhere out there, just given the vastness of the universe and how relatively common the ingredients for life probably are. And if there's anything that makes me doubt my unbelief, it would probably be first cause arguments, which I still don't find very convincing, but they still give me a bit of pause. And I'm referring to the cosmological arguments, uh, you know, a la Aristotle by way of Aquinas, etc. The idea that everything that is requires a beginning or a cause, but ultimately there's a first cause, an unmoved mover. And at first blush, it sounds kind of good. It seems to get rid of the problem of infinite regress, and it kind of makes sense. Everything must, must have come from somewhere, right? But I think both science and religion are plagued by the problem of infinite regress. And I don't think simply asserting that there was a first cause and that that first cause must have been God is sufficient, at least not for me. And whether we're talking about a god or the naturalistic universe, trying to contemplate or fathom how something could be without a beginning is absolutely mind-bending. Maybe our limited primate brains just aren't equipped to fully wrap our minds around concepts like infinity, etc. Am I saying etc. too much? Anyway, in the case of God, you know, how could an intelligent mind come from nowhere or have no beginning? In the case of the naturalistic universe, where did that initial hot, dense state or the, the conditions that preceded the Big Bang come from? Trying to contemplate either for too long can threaten to drive you mad. And I know some Christian apologists will try to argue that, oh, you don't have to worry about whether or not God had a beginning because God is outside of space and time. So <laughs> space and time didn't exist until he brought everything into creation, which kind of sounds like a weird cheat to me or workaround. And trying to contemplate something being outside of space and time, there's another uh, mind bender. And so I kind of come down on the side that there's probably a naturalistic explanation for why there's ultimately something instead of nothing. But at this point in time, at least, we're just incapable of wrapping our primate heads around it. But, and once again, that's not what I want to be true. I'd rather believe that... <sighs> consciousness survives death and that there's a divine source behind it all. But uh, I just try to go with what seems more realistic to me and where my reason leads me. And like I said, uh, these big questions kind of take us to the limit of our reason, I think. And whether there's a God or a naturalistic explanation beyond that wall that our reason bumps up against, I guess is up to each one of us to answer or try to figure out for ourselves. But with that being said, I'm going to call this episode a wrap. Hopefully it wasn't too morbid or mind-bending. Or, <laughs> But uh, as always, thank you everyone for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter or X, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekanddoubt and help support the show for as little as 99 
99 cents a month, or you can even make a one-time donation via PayPal, Phil Albertelli, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, all right, everyone, uh, brothers and sisters, until next time.